Very good morning to all of you and uh, my greetings from India and it's my, my great pleasure being over here. Dr. Patrick has invited me over here in front of this August gathering. Uh, I'm, working in a, I'm working as a dean of a medical college which is very close to our capital that is Delhi. It is in the national capital region of Delhi and uh, last year we had the, the privilege of calling Dr. Patrick along with his team to come over here and discuss about whatever the things are going on in the world. And uh, it's my pleasure that we had started some sort of research work approximately one to one to one and a half years or so. And thereafter, we got more interested as we started getting positive results out of this research. And now we are extending forward. So what my topic over here is to, to give you recent updates that have come up in the world on the brain tap research and the mind-body medicine, how it can be integrated as a part of the mind-body medicine and what we are trying to do it across the world, being with, uh, connecting with various parts of the world where we all can come together to, to make it as a scientific evidential proof to doc document it that yes, it cre creates a lot of changes. So I'll be talking about the recent updates on brain tap research and the mind-body medicine. So what is mind-body medicine? Now, basically what we are talking about are various forms of the things, but the science recognizes this field as mind-body medicine. That means where the mind and the body, they get connected and it is not the brain and the body. What it talks about is interactions among the brain and the mind. So brain is different, the mind is different body and behavior and the powerful ways in which the emotional, mental, social, spiritual and behavioral effects can directly affect. That is the definition from NIH USA itself. So mind-body medicine techniques are being used in various ways. There are large, large number of various uh, techniques that encompass this mind-body medicine like cognitive behavioral therapies, relaxation, hypnosis, and out of them, one of the ones which is coming up all over the world is neurologic music therapy, where the music therapy in the various pure tones, in the various forms, can also be included as, and can also be given as an adjunct to the patients. And along with that, yoga, meditation, and autogenic training. So now, this is what we are looking for. The mind-body connection helps us to bring the inner balance by being inner tuned to higher consciousness. Simply meaning it, that every day when we start from getting up in the morning till we go in the nights, we go through a huge amount of emotional changes from being happiest to the saddest. And what we need to do is to look for some tool, something that we can have that can give us the equanimity of time, equanimity of self, that we remain calm and composed all over the times. So for that, this mind-body medicine is actually belonging to the, the word called as life homeostasis that we always remain in a state of balance and that balance percolates outside all the times, even though going through the plethora of emotions. So the history of mind-body medicine is that we know, now this is the question that we all are looking all over the world, how to begin a holistic lifestyle. We have tidbits of everything, every person is having enjoying one part or not enjoying the, but ultimately what we are looking for is that as a human being, as a holistic self, we are able to live this life. And science is also trying to cover up all these questions by looking at the various components of wellness where they will look for the behavioral, behavioral wellness, they will look at the herbal, they will look at the, the inner consciousness and all those things. So now there is a time has come where we have to connect the modern scientific evidence, the modern scientific techniques with the ancient techniques and this is where the world is moving. So if I am talking, if I take it for the yoga, which has originated somewhere from India. Now, this has got a lot of relevance, the yoga, the meditation, the mind-body medicine in today's world. It's so because initially when we go to the history of yoga, we find that around 5,000 years ago, they developed yoga not to have the equanimity of mind. They did not do it so that we remain always balanced. But it was developed as a form of salvation or a form of moksha shastra and but what was the science has observed is all those people who are practicing any form of yogic technique or any form of mind body technique they all are finding that those people are actually very 
are, are much better, they are much healthier in the mind and in the body and they are able to go through the stress periods of life in a much better way when they are exposed to it. So this finds a lot of relevance in today's world. So if I go from the yogic point of view, uh, if we talk from the ancient literature, it never talks about that this is our body. It is only considered as the one-fifth of the total body. That means it is always considered that we have inner layers and all of them they interact to give out all the positive or the negative results that we reflect throughout the day. And that is what is happening at the subtle level in our body. So what it says is that we have this thul sharir or the gross body that we are having and where we have all the physical and the brain and the heart and all those things are there and the organs. When we go inner to it, we have sukshma sharir. That means the subtle body which is usually composed of these three koshas, pranamai, manomai or vigyanmai, where all these sheaths are having our all the various components and these are capable of having interacting with our outer body and they give out the reactions. And the innermost is the karan sharir or the causal body, anandmai kosh. So how is it relevant? What the only thing it says is, the different from the what the today modern science that we are reading and we are talking is, we only talk at the psychological component and we talk at the gross or our body component. But it talks about that we have the further inner things. If at all the disturbance is occurring at these things, it reflects, it manifests itself in various forms of the disorders. For example, if the manomai kosh or which is called as adi, that is the, the inner layer, if then it starts affecting its outer layer that is pranamai, that goes to anamai and that leads to the physical disorder vyadi. That means it has occurred much deeper at some level inside the body and there only it is reflecting. So our yogic shastra, it does not talk about only the physical body, it about, talks about the various mental things that they all interact together and they give rise to these things. Same way for the psychological things. Now coming to uh, intellectual sheath, the 5000 years back only they used to talk about that we have an intellectual sheath which is there inside. Whenever we are always clear about what we have to do in today's day, at this time, we are never under stress. Whenever we are thinking about past, present and future, whenever we are thinking what I am going to do this, when I am going to do this, it is the main cause of stress. And what is pulling our today's society is WhatsApp, any sort of Facebook or any sort of mail which comes to us and which asks us to take an action. And we are always in a state of distress, what to do with this? or with our social, our social relations or anything like that. So it takes that whenever we are having a failure to take a right decision, the psychological stress and the chronic diseases, they start occurring. And this cause of disharmony is mainly responsible for so many of the disorders that we are happening. And what about today's world? The way we are looking in our allopathy, I'm also an allopath, but what we usually see is that the world has got a lot of advancement because of the reductionist view. We start zooming into a particular component, we go from the body to the cell and then to its cellular structures and we try to clear all those things and then we come out of it. But it is somewhat, it can be likened to an old story that we all have read that all the blind men trying to, to evaluate the elephant and trying to give it somebody saying trunk, somebody saying about ears, somebody is talking about legs and all that. But ultimately what they are saying is, if you say cardiologist says, no, nothing wrong with your heart. The neurologist says, nothing wrong with your brain. Then you go to someone else and, and, and but nobody sees the complete picture nowadays. And that is actually again a big problem for our today's world that we have got the specialist, but we don't have a holistic person. And we need to somehow look at both the components because, because we, are, we are living in a world where these advancements are actually necessary. But apart from that, this mind-body connection is also something that we had been living. The human society has evolved over lakhs of years. In past 10,000 years, it has never been so crowded. It has never had to do so many things, never had to take so many decisions. And the life was much more easier. But what has started happening is, now the body is theorized as an intelligent cognitive agent, which has the desires, appetites and understandings, which is completely independent of mind. Mind is a different entity, body is a different entity. What I am thinking inside is different. If I am having any disorder, that is a different thing for which a doctor will come and will cure my disease. But usually it does not work that way. 
So that is why in US itself, more than 50% of the chronic illness patients, they are using some, some, some form of mind-body therapy applications. Now it's a huge number and if you talk it all over the world, and then again it talks about that's what, what so many of the people are using it, all the people say no. They, we have large number of cardiologists, we have cardiovascular surgeons, we have neurosurgeons, but then why 50% of the people are now coming back and they are looking at some sort of treatment through these, again, the mind-body connections. So now this is the relevance. This is where we are. So there, the world is now crowded. Everybody is asking so many things all the time. We are never at one place at a time and we can't change that reality. The reality is that this is the world that we are living in and this is what we want to be in and we have lost the mind-body connection. So something has to be done in our life that in spite of living in this world which the human society has never seen, it has never seen so much of the conflicts going on in and out. And if you so, it does not mean that there were not earlier, there were, but there were only few questions posed. Now every person is posed one question every hour where the person has to take a decision. So if you talk about it, when we are talking about it, this is in relevance to mind-body medicine today, where we still keep living in this world, but we can still be in this situation where we can maintain our mind-body composure all the times. So these are, now these are the challenges of today's world, coronary artery disease, diabetes, hypertension, these are all just the manifestations of the inner issues which are coming out and we have to resolve it by some sort of, and if you talk about it, a huge trillions and dollars are going on for to maintain this economic load on the persons. So what changes this risk profile? Now in India at least I can say India has 1.3 billion population and if you consider the number that by two, from 2015 onwards, every one out of two deaths is going to occur due to cardiovascular related disease. That means a huge number of people who are going to suffer and it has a huge economic burden and we don't know how to treat it. So there are lots of genetic factors that we can't change, but this is something that we have to look into, that we have to look for some sort of medium in which we can go for the mind and the body or the emotional and the intellectual component where they all come together, they connect together and we can have a wholesome life. So this re-establishment of mind-body connection has led, now it can be in either ways, you start moving the body and the mind starts getting the rest or you start moving the mind and so your body starts going into the conscious efforts where you want to take it to. So this is where actually I feel that brain tap comes into play where the modern technology can also be introduced in from the comforts of the home from the places and it can help us in bringing out this mind-body connection. So these are the current applications. I'll not go into the details of it. You know it, you can read through it that there are large number of disorders where the medical field has already started accepting these. These are all proven things where it is being taken either as full as a, or as an adjunct therapy. And the experimental studies, the research which is going on in various fields have found that it leads to the improvement in the cardiac vagal tone as uh, uh, Dr. Patrick I'm sure would have talked about heart rate variability and the improved glucose tolerance the moderation of neuroendocrine responses, that means simply psycho, neuro, immuno axis that can be affected and the stress axis can be affected and the stress goes down and our psycho, neuro, immuno action becomes much better. That means these all therapies promote homeostasis. So I would like to talk about a little bit about what is the mechanistic psychological Thing, framework of all these mind-body therapies, whether it is yoga, whether it is listening to brain tap or listening to any relaxation, or you are talking about meditation, or you are talking about any activity, any creative activity, which brings happiness in you. How it is capable of bringing, and all these things are totally different things. Somebody is going for Tai Chi, the other person is going for meditation, the other person is sitting comfortably in the room only, and they are listening to the music or they are listening to the various sessions.
if I would like to uh, put up all these things that this meditation or swimming where that means any sort of vigorous activity where the body is moving but you are not doing anything and like the brain tap or we are having Tai Chi as I have told or mental visualization or which is again a component one of the components is taught in the brain taps or in any of the imaginary or the visualization which can be utilized for the peak performance as it is being utilized in the sports physiology or any form of spirituality. In spirituality also we are looking where the blending of our all the psychological components there is a complete change and all of these things actually revolve around one thing that is neuroplasticity. Now neuroplasticity simply meaning is that earlier the medical science for 500 years was stuck up with single thing that if something goes wrong with our heart, with our body, with something with my bone, then it can be corrected by an orthopedician or by any, any doctor. But if something goes wrong with the mind, it's not possible. Somebody has gone through senile dementia, somebody has had Alzheimer's disease, which is a huge problem here, or you have Parkinson's. These cannot be corrected because they believe that the brain can never regrow. If the brain has died once or if the cortical neurons have atrophied once, it is not possible. And that was the belief, constant belief for past 500 years which prevented us to look for the human transformation or look us for various sorts of correction of the disorders because we would always go for palliative sort of management. Okay, you keep on taking the medicines, let's see it. But now the world is very slowly recognizing that the neuroplasticity is coming out in a big way and it is very much possible for us to, to take care of it, to use it to transform ourselves. So what is it? It is the lifelong ability of the brain to reorganize neural pathways based on new experiences. That is, if the brain is challenged, it tries to come up to it in both health and in disease. So if we are healthy, we can use this neuroplasticity to increase our performance to increase to go to the peak performance and if we are having any sort of disorder then we can take it towards the upper graph and we can make it to a place to a place where the person needs very less amount of the medications or to an extent where he can be disease free or he can live a better life so the positive neuroplasticity telomere research and default mode network are the three things i'll be taking i'll be talking about and we'll try to relate to our research that we are doing in india so first is neuroplasticity as i have just told that now the research says that the, our neural tissue our brain also has the adult stem cells and those stem cells are capable of growing new dendrites and new new growth structure can happen and it gets integrated into the complete neural network and we can become near towards the better side. The second is the telomere and lifestyle disease research. Talking a little bit about telomere is, as we all know that we have 46 chromosomes and this, 23 pairs of these chromosomes are there. This is all our life is. All the hundreds and trillions of cells are having it. But starts what starts happening? Every stress something that I learnt over uh, practicing for past 20-30 years is every thought, whatever we are thinking at conscious level, whether it is good or bad, it has a physical signature. Every thought that we are thinking and nobody knows how many thoughts we think but somebody says roughly around 50 to 60,000 thoughts. Imagine how much tinkering work is going on all the time. So. Telomere, what it says is that all these hundreds and trillions of cells they are having, all the chromosomes have a cap at its end. And all these caps, they protect the chromosomes. And as we start going into every, every thought when it, we are doing any sort of stress that we are having it, these are like our shock absorbers. So when these, these go away, when these fraying occurs, the chromosomes start degenerating and that is what is leading to all the problems, whether it is diabetes, whether it is uh, cancer or any form of other disorders, cardiovascular or anything. So I'll be taking it. And the third one is very interesting that has been, that is coming up in past uh, five years of research. In fact, I should say that a lot of work has gone into it that we are trying to understand our own default mode network. What is it? So telomeres are aglets of our chromosomes. We all know when the shoelace is having these aglets, at the end of this, what will happen if this plastic goes off? 
after some period of time. There is some reason that this plastic is kept over there, not to get it through the hole only. There is another reason for it also, that once it goes, we know that the life of this shoelace is over. Same thing happens to our chromosomes. So once the stress leads to the disintegration of these caps or the telomeres at the ends of it, it is nearly sure that the chromosome will start happening. And now imagine that process going on in trillions of cells, 70 to 100 trillions of cells simultaneously, and that is what leads us to aging. So we now we understand, now we also know, a lot of research has also gone into it, that it is not something that is from X to Y. It is going only in one direction. It is very much possible that although the healthy aging will occur, that it is very much possible that we can increase these telomere levels, we can increase cappings of it, and all these mind-body interactions is the only way that you can answer to all 100 trillion cells. You can't answer to every cell you give uh, B complex to one and you give vitamin C to others and you are trying to look at it and you try to see what is happening to me. So there has to be a thought process which says, I am okay. That goes to all the cells. So that stress management is something that is, that these are the physical correlates of what we are trying to study. So lots and lots and lots of studies have shown that if a person is suffering from atherosclerosis, hypertension, obesity, diabetes, in case of a smoker or physical inactivity, which is again a very big problem in today's world, we do not even uh, come to 50% of the minimum recommendations, that is nearly 150 minutes of walk or any form of the uh, physical activity which is aerobic in nature and most of it, it is, most of it is aerobic in nature and it can be accrued over one week or so, 150 minutes. So when we are talking about 7 billion population not able to do it, we are actually looking at this telomere attrition. So what it shows is that stress, diet, inflammation, all these agents have found that the telomere gets reduced and if we go towards the better any form of the treatment, then we find that the person's health is better, whether it is physical or it is the emotional health. So the psychophysiological action of mind-body practices, it looks, and there are lots and lots of things which are coming up is, that the mind interacts with the body not in one way direction, that the mind is ruling the whole of the body, it is not like that. If suppose, if the, we interact into some sort of physical activity also, there is always an afferent, there is always the upward signals that flow to the brain and that also improves the brain activity. And from there the neuroplastic changes, they come down and there are multiple neuraxis levels. At all these levels it interacts and that is what is responsible. So now we are talking about, because of these changes, of these interactions, we are now talking about epigenesis. That means, okay, fine, I have one genetic component, one has the other, the third one has the other, but it is always possible that the epigenetic mechanisms, we can improve the, our functioning and we can prevent this telomere degradation, which has a lot of genetic component to, to play it all. So the epigenetic mechanisms, they change the gene expression. And what are the substrates, the other substrates of mind-body interaction? The first one I have just talked over here is one of, one of the things that I am going to talk, sorry, is executive homostatic network. These are the structures that are present in the brain that are affected by any sort of the physical activity or the mental activity that we do. And the other one over here is the default mode network, which I'll be taking again. Both of them, they interact in a way that brings neuroplasticity changes in the brain and ultimately affects the cells and the chromosome where if they are, we find that the telomeres, they, they increase or they decrease in the length. If at all, it is going in the negative direction and ultimately how it relates to our body. We all need energy. We talk about, I'm sapped with energy, I'm having, I'm full of energy. What we are actually talking about in the physical correlates, we are talking about mitochondria, which is considered as the powerhouse of the cell. So when these, all the positive changes, they occur, they ultimately, how they reflect to the body is that we have more amount of mitochondria available to do the repair to take care of our activities and to give us extra cover when we need it. So the substrates of mind-body medicine, the executive homeostatic network is consisting of prefrontal cortex, that means this area, the area which is separating us from all other animals, anterior cingulate cortex, which is 
and the insular cortex, both of these are related to our emotional component and other components. And then they interact with the physical structures, all the peripheral structures that they are present in the body. And they interact at multiple neuraxis levels. And these, they ultimately lead to the problem. Now, another one is the default mode network. Now, this is very interesting. I'll take a few minutes to, to share it with you. Default mode network is nearly composed of 11 structures. And this is where most of the research, especially in US, has gone in mindfulness meditation also. So what we see is, these are the areas they keep lightened up all the time. They are never quiet. They are always lightened up. So I'll give it, uh, let's have a, a small demo also of it. So these are 11 structures. They usually start, it has two big nodes. One node is over here, this dorsomedial prefrontal cortex, and the, pre, and the post one is deep inside the brain is posterior cingulate cortex and all of them they form a network and they keep always you know chit chat chit chat keeps on going so how is it related so this experiential self has as the scientists talk about it we have a core we where it stands i it has two various components first of all it should be able to relate itself to the to the time whether it is past whether it was past, whether it is present or it is future. And second thing is, this is me and this is you. That is relation of self with the world. This is in all the core system is. And this default mode network, it has two nodes. Uh, I don't, I'll not go into the details of it, but what it talks about is that this is the one which is responsible to give us the core of our self, I. I am this, I was this. I am going this, I was doing this yesterday, now I am doing this and tomorrow I'll do that. This is me and this is you. If we are somehow able to dissolve these things, then our whole structure changes, our thinking changes. So what is it that this default mode network does? It questions why. It gives us, we are always self-ruminating even though when we are sitting quiet, it keeps telling us some sort of, it keeps posing questions to us. That is self-rumination. Second is daydreaming. Although we all are over here, but I'm sure that many of you will agree that we are not only over here. We are somewhere else also. We are, we are planning. We are thinking about our past. We are thinking about our future. So we are doing daydreaming. Oh, this is there. So these are the inputs. I'm going to use this over there. So daydreaming. Next is introspection. We always keep, because I know that I am here, they are there, and this, although at subconscious level, we always keep introspecting. We always keep on thinking about our own actions and always keep comparing. Whenever the compare comes, the stress comes. Then with the mind also, this always keeps, this is how our mind is having the situation right now. It is having so many things going on, simultaneously so we are not able to have a single thought we are not able to focus on single thought in any period of time and that is a function of this default mode network so this experiential self ultimately if i see this is what happens mind keeps wandering all the time mind wandering goes on and it's a supercomputer because it has 11 different nodes all over the brain and they all keep transferring the information and all the information is related to only one thing I, me, myself, this, that, others. This is past, this is present, this is future. So these, this is what uh, is, uh, if you talk about, this is called as time travel. This time travel gives us the self-identity. Now I would like request you, please kindly just close your eyes for 30 seconds and just observe your thoughts. Then I'll just ask one question from you. Just please close your eyes and just see. I would like to have a demo of default mode network with you. Right, please open your eyes. So, how many of you had 
been in this present moment only? Did we feel that we, some of the thoughts were coming from past, somebody from future? If we are always in present, it's a very good situation for us. But usually what happens is, mind keeps going for the time travel. It keeps going over here. So I'll be asking only these two questions. Were we able to witness that flip-flop was going on? We were going from this to that side all the times. So this is what default keeps going to it. It keeps on putting it to us a complete reference that this is not the present. We have a past, we have a future also. So for the survival, it is good. That is why the God has given to us. But at the same time, this is where the stress is also there. Now this is what another question is. How many of the thoughts were related only to others? So this is another function of it. I, me, mine. When we talk about categorization of the thoughts, say over 50,000 thoughts to 60,000, most of them are related to me only. Even if I am in the future, I am in the future. If I am witnessing, I am only witnessing. So enough of it. So this is what is called, then another is theory of mind. This is the only reason when I know that I have an identity and the other person has, I can get into the mind of the others and the empathy comes, the compassion comes, where I can evolve further and we can, I can even relate to them. That is very important for the medical profession. So this is how an eye of a person looks like at, an infant looks like at, at an age of one year. Hardly notes any, there are some flying notes around, they will be going around, they don't stick, but as the period of time, as, the, as our growth keeps occurring, we start developing various, these uh, notes, these, uh, these notes starts getting attached to my eye, and we start developing an eye, and this is, the eye gets transformed, it starts reacting to it, and this is what is, I was talking about. So there are two components of this default. It gives me self in time, that I am present, past, present, future, and second is self and others. This one is self and this is others. So when this keeps on going on, this empathy, so that we are having the empathy. Now this is what is, if it is to a lesser extent, if it is controlled, it's fine. But usually the inputs from outside and when we compare ourselves, this is what starts happening. We start self-criticizing which starts going about self-depreciation. We start comparing ourselves and we start thinking that whole of the world, I am only responsible for all the wrong things that are going around. And that creates a lot of things. I am not talking about whole world itself, where we are living also, that is also a world for me. That we start talking about it, we want to have this. So this introspection, self-reflection and other things, this is there where our mind starts jittering. And, and this is how the eye looks like when we grow up, when we become an adult, mature person. Many of these notes, they stick to us and that changes our perspective towards the world. And we start again thinking about this. So there's a switch over between the task positive network is, suppose now you are active, you are conscious, you are listening, that is where you are using your task positive network. But still at the same time, you are also thinking, you are going in the past, present, future, that is your default mode network. So there is a control network. Somehow, if when we want to work, we want to switch this to this, this side. So if we start going towards the task positive network, that means we start becoming more focused. That is where when we are watching any movie, when we are going for any activity, we lose the sense of time. We start getting dissolved in that time over there and we start using more of this TPN. The competition between these two starts reducing. When, when we are bored, it's the opposite. Coming to the last part of it before I take it on to the other components. Then our working memory is somewhere over here. In the physical consciousness, it can only relate to seven plus minus two things at a time. If I ask you two to za, and plus I give you A plus C, A plus D. So what it can do is you will store five informations, but you will, you will start working on one after the other. A normal person cannot do more than seven plus minus two. But if you go below, you know, there is a huge supercomputer that keeps working, that keeps looking at trillions of solutions. That's what default keeps working. If I'm asking what is his name, what is his name, I've totally forgot it. And then after some time when I'm not thinking about it, I'm driving or doing something, suddenly the name, the name crops up. So this is what actually happens. And so if this DMN starts working as an offline processor, it's very good. We pose the question, we throw it, and then we leave it over there. But if it starts interfering, if it goes with our working memory, with our working RAM only, 
then it's a huge problem because the working memory is very small as compared to the supercomputer that is there in the brain inside, right? So what will happen now? Let us assume that due to some due to some sort of technology or some sort of interaction of mind body, we are a capable of answering to these two things: self in time and self and others. Let us say self in time. Suppose if you can address to this question, you have some mechanism. You can say that this is the present and there is the DMN stops going from past to the future. What will happen? Only this thing, you know that there is only one thing that is now. And when there is only now, we are never under any confusion. We are never under any stress. We are usually having the stress when we have to look at things in the past, present and future. And suppose if I lose the another component also, self and others. I know that everything is to be answered, that all the things are same. Suppose for an example, which is again another side, I'm not talking about uh, spiritual context, I'm talking precisely the medical ways that how it is being found out. So suppose if we are not able to relate anything between self and others, what will happen? Omnipresent. You are everywhere. You don't understand what is you, what is me and what is self and what is the other. The self-identification merges with the superconsciousness, or what we can say. So this, uh, this DMN activity, if it can be controlled, if it can be reduced to an extent where we can have the empathy, but at the same time, we do not only think about selfishly about ourselves only, whether we are in any organization, whether we are working on any, any component, whether we are working on any project, we take team members together, we think about me, we, then what will happen? Much of the stress will go down. So this is what actually is what I related to earlier, that the world is same. We can't change the world. It is still crowded. It is still having so many problems. It still has all the issues. So I'll just take an example of it. Now, this is, these are the group of activities in the meditators with the novices. And what we can see, this is the areas of, again, DMN, or the, these node activities are there. You can see over here that this is getting lightened up. So whenever a person is selfing, that means selfing either in the perspective of time, place, or, or selfing in the presence of I, me, mine, these activities, these areas will lighten up. These brain areas, they lighten up. So what we see is, when we compare the meditators, they have more and more of control, lesser and lesser of quietude of the mind, even when they are not doing. So they have found out some sort of mechanism on which they can work and they can find out that, that they can quieten this mind. That is why they are capable of having higher empathy compassion. But at the same time, they are not having too many thoughts going on that leads to the better physical and the mental health. So this is what, uh, this is a real-time neurofeedback. That means a person is thinking, is sitting over there and the posterior cingulate cortex which is one of the main, main nodes of this autobiographical memory is sitting over there and what we are seeing is that a novice, whenever this red uh, area comes, that means a person is selfing. Whenever a thought comes related to self, this area brightens up. And when a person is thinking about others, then this blue light comes up. So what we can see is a person who is in a novice, even though the person wants to sit quiet, wants to be happy with himself or herself, but is not at all comfortable. When I'm asking you to sit for one minute, we don't know what to do. Because we are not in control, we are never in quietude with ourselves, right? So when we compare it with the experts, the people who are the meditators, what we find out, this selfing is much lesser. We can see that this posterior cingulate cortex is not active, even though the person is fully active fully conscious, is working with others. So this gives us, again, the neural correlates of our own thinking process. Now what they have done, they have used one mechanism that they can go into a state where they can reduce this activity of default mode network and they can increase their peak performance, right? So meditative practices, as uh, esoterically it is called as the connection between the mind and the heart, when the connection is more, that means our, the our intellectual, the cognitive component and our emotional component, the person is always feels better. So I'll just uh, take this example. 
Now this question says that what they are doing actually, is it something that we all can do or is it something that is beyond our capacities? So if we know that imagination can transform us by thinking only we can change our mentality, then it is a big tool, then we can utilize it, right? So this study was done in Harvard. It was done a very famous scientist, Alvaro Pascual Leon. He did this experiment. What he did was he took two groups of students, Harvard school students, or the medical uh, students only. One group, they said, from Monday to Friday, you, you will sit on piano and sare gamma pa, like that. He will say that you will have to touch the notes and you practice for two hours. And to the other group, he says, you just come, you sit in front of piano, but you will not touch piano. You will be sitting in front of piano for two hours and you will say sare gamma pa, but you will not touch the nodes. Then what he did is he wanted to see what happens when the mental image where the person is thinking that yes, he is playing the nodes, he is playing the keys, but the other group is physically practicing it. So what he actually finds out is when he, they practice with a single hand only, practice it for two hours and they both are novices, not the experts who are the piano players, right? So what they find out is that the brain structures, when you imagine something very strongly with emotions and you believe it in the conscious memory, what happens? The may brain areas which get lit up are totally same. There is no difference. Due to this, he found out that the physical practice group and the mental practice group, <clears throat> he was able to find out with transmagnetic stimulation that the area involvement of the motor areas, all the areas of the brain were nearly same. So it means that if we are capable of consciously thinking about any sort of thought, any sort of process, it's very much possible that we can control our mind activity and we can also bring neuroplastic changes, the healthy neuroplastic changes in our brain. So this study was done again by Davidson et al. group uh, in US only. Uh, the Lai Lama sent the, the Lamas who had been, the monks who had been practicing for more than 10,000 to 40,000 hours. It's a very famous study. I'm sure many of you would have read it also. So what it talks about is the greater activation of gamma waves and better organization, especially in the left prefrontal cortex. And these lamas, they do not have any mobiles, they do not have any belongings, they do not have any structures, nothing is there with them. But in spite of that, what he found out was that these are the people who had the best of the happiness areas of the brain, their left prefrontal cortex brain of the area was always lit up, even though when they were not meditating. So what they have done, what they can do, we can also do. They had just one idea that they are involving some sort of positive practice where they spend some time with some sort of mental imagery which is positive in nature. And when, if we can involve it, these changes are possible in us also. And second thing what was found out very clearly is the suppression of DMN activity. They are capable of compassion and love without putting them in picture. That means if every person is happy, I should, I am also happy. He just thinks that everybody is happy, automatically he is also happy. So that small subtle difference is seen over here in the working of these people. So the left prefrontal cortex areas is related to the happiness and what he told was that he is one of the happiest person he has met in the life. Like that, there are lots of theories. Now, we are not talking about 10,000 hours. Now, what will happen if a person practices for one day? So this study was done where they found out the impact of a day of intensive practice of mindfulness meditation in experienced subjects. So they were able to find out that all these psycho, neuro, immuno parameters, I'm not going to the details of it, all those parameters, they were able to find out that they could recover from all the stressful situations of the lives in a much better way. And that's why precisely that this mind-body medicine is relevant today. When we are taking so many various medications, why don't we utilize our own mind to interact with our own body so that we do not have to go for many of the immune disorders, many of various other disorders that we all are suffering from. So this study was done uh, coming to this binaural beats and talking about isochronic tones. So now again, there were multiple studies have been done how this brain tap or anything can work into it. So what they did is, uh, again, it is just an example only I am taking. There are thousands of studies which are available all across the world. 
that what is the brain response when 6 hertz binaural beat is given and to the to the general public they took the adult young adults only we can see there were 28 participants of younger age and they gave this brain uh, this uh, binaural beats for 30 minutes and they took their QEEG or the quantitative EEG analysis and what they were able to find out was that after this 30 minutes and they took their mood scale and what they were found out is this is what their this is that they took their mood scale then 5 minutes of the baseline of EEG then 30 minutes of the binaural beats and then 5 minutes and then again they took the mood scales. Now, when we go for any form of this music therapy or any form of these things, the pure tones as we call it, what happens, the whole of the brain executive homeostatic network starts organizing itself according to the rhythm of what we are giving it from, the, from our ear. Now, this illusion occurs at the mid-collicular levels when it goes to the auditory cortex, the brain will only see the difference as we know that if one ear is given 400, the other ear is given 400, 6 hertz, the brain will only hear 6 hertz difference. That auditory illusion occurs somewhere when it is trying to bring the things together at the mid-collicular level and it goes up, it goes to the auditory cortex and from the auditory cortex it goes to whole of the brain. Then what they found very interesting thing is that only after 10 minutes of the exposure they were able to find theta rhythms going on in nearly all the areas of the brain or in some other areas they found that theta brain activity was predominant. And we all know theta brain activity when it increases, it is somewhere related to the quieting of our brain activities. It leads us that we are going towards our, our synchronized neural signals and that somehow is also seen in various other forms of meditation. So what they found was 20 minutes, 25 minutes like that they took it, that theta activity in all cortical positions within 10 minutes, pattern similar to meditative state. So if we are capable of meditation without any things, that's good. But suppose if we want to start somewhere, we want to give it to the patients who are suffering, who say, no, we can't do that, it's not for us. So what the research shows is that although they, this, this is something where you know lot of research activities have to go on to go to prove it beyond point that you know what what rhythm is to be given to which patient what is to be given to it that is where i would like to work over here so what we can see is pattern is similar to the meditative state and there are two types of theta rhythms one is that general rhythm which i told that it started increasing in 10 minutes but then there is one central this is the parieto central region which usually occurs when a person goes into the deeper state of meditation. Deeper state of complete relaxation. Let me not take word now meditation. When you go into a complete state of relaxation, where the relaxation response starts occurring, at that time this central theta line starts occurring. So what they were able to find out is, when we give six hertz of this binaural beat activity, without any isochronic tones, they gave pure binaural tones, they were able to find out that there was an increased general theta rhythm at the frontal and the parietal regions and this frontal midline theta activity at FZ position, FZ position within 10 minutes of stimulus exposure. So somewhere we again now can correlate that if this sort of activity is happening when a person is going for working from the comfort of the homes and we can somehow synchronize the brain signals then we can we are capable of find of bringing the person towards homeostasis where the neural signals are coordinated where we they they feel the meditation like state and they can also derive benefits which are seen in the case of meditation so now another important thing is that uh, they were also able to fi find out that the similar brain wave entrainment effects occur they cause the cognitive enhancement a person improves the cognitive thinking, the, the, the way the person works, the mood scores, which is very, very much possible, and in the alpha frequency also. So theta and alpha are also there. Delta also people have tried it out, and many people have been successful, and others they say that they are not able to get into the delta state with this. Maybe the delta leads to the alpha state of the, of the coordination. So this is what uh, I could take from BrainTap site only, where it talks about various forms, various wave patterns when it occurs and for the deep sleep also, the delta waves can be given. If it is given in the night, 
I'm sure that something will happen if you give delta waves in the night to the patient or to the person, then it will cause the synchronization effect, the frequency following response in the person, and maybe that we can, we can see that the benefit occurs. So what happens? There are again various other studies which talk about this normalization of this brain activity. The neural signals come down, they come to, as I have told, they work at various neuraxis levels. So when it goes from the right, from the cortex to the subcortical areas, there is area called as autonomic nervous system, which has the sympathetic and parasympathetic. We always talk about adrenaline rush. The person is under adrenaline rush. What we are talking about is that the sympathetic activity is very high. The person is in the state of rage, in the state of anxiety, in the state of always rush, inability to take decisions, jitteriness and all that. So when this meditation or any sort of these activities occur, when the neural signals, they flow down, they reduce the activity of parasympathetic and they increase the activity of parasympathetic, which is trophic in nature. That actually, it, it nourishes our body. Our thinking becomes better, although our heart rate, our blood pressure, our signals in the brain and everything reduces. None of them, uh, we don't want it in the excess. So what happens is, as we all know that the athletes who practice, the persons who are going for the marathon run and other things, their heartbeat is 50 maybe lesser than that. So 50 to 60 is enough, but for a normal person it is 80, 90, 100. Medical science says up to 100 is normal. But we all know that whatever, how we feel when our heartbeat is 100, right? So it says from 60 to 100 is normal. But we all know that it is how it feels like to be normal. That is where our society is today, right? So this has shown that binaural beats are capable, when a person goes for post-exercise, are capable of producing further relaxation. That means if we move any sort of physical activity, and after that we say that, okay, now you can go for any sort of uh, binaural tones, if we give it to 10 minutes to 15 minutes, we still find that the person is capable of going into parasympathetic tone much faster and stays there for longer periods of time, even after the post-exercise recovery state. So it improves the parasympathetic tone. Binaural beats affect the vigilance, performance and mood. As we all know, when our mind becomes clear, we are clear at, at, at least at some time in the day, we are absolutely clear. We can see the things clearly. When the mind becomes completely occupied with the thoughts, we can't see it. So it says that binaural auditory beats have been found that they affect the vigilance, performance and the mood. And this is also true for alpha brainwave entrainment as a cognitive performance activator and it also improves the prefrontal and the parietal brain EEG in the theta frequency. So we are getting lots and lots of uh, uh, activities which are going on. So now it goes the same true for the stroboscopic light as it is being used in one of them like in BrainTap. In others also they try to go for not for the auditory brainwave entrainment, they go for the auditory and visual brainwave entrainment. So both of these have another additive effect. The effect is much better and the person can go from the normal state to the state of meditation. Again, the preparation is important. You can't say the person is thinking of anger and you know all the negative emotions, the person is sitting and you give any equipment and the person says, no, I'm okay. Because he will deliberately inhibit the inputs which are coming from here. So the instruction is important that you just let yourself lose. And then nature knows its ways, how to bring the things into the complete balance. So it can be used as a positive health tool. Now what is the physiology behind it? That the vagus nerve, we know that we have 12 pairs of nerves and the longest nerve out of them is the vagus nerve that goes from our GIT, it ascends, it goes to our heart, then it goes to our neck, it goes to our brain and all the signals that whether we are eating anything, whether we are thinking anything, whatever it is happening, what it happens is that the inflow and the outflow of the signals from the vagus are increased. That means it is one of the ways that the connection can be established and we can look into the connections. The efferent vagal tone, lots of studies are saying that whether it is yoga, whether it is meditation, whether it is like we are talking about neurologic music therapy, all of them, they what they do is, that the efferent vagal tone improves, that the neural signals from here to here go more and from here it goes more. So if we, a person is going for physical activity like swimming, for bicycling or anything what they are doing, 
Again, what they are doing is they are moving their peripheral structures. From the peripheral structures, it goes up, it goes to the brain, into this executive homeostatic network. There is more synchronized neural signals that they flow down this vagus nerve and they cause cooling effect. And whenever the vagus activity is high, one of the things that happens is that we do not have this stimulation of HPA axis or hypothalamopituitary adrenal axis, which brings a lot of stress in us, right? And also at the same time, our hippocampus. We know that when the stress is like many cases of depression patients are there, what we see is that the depression patients, they are not able to think, even if you ask them to do two twos are four, five threes are they will not be able to do these things. They can't hold the things in their mind because their hippocampal atrophy has occurred and many other structures. They are never focused on one thought. So the hippocampus is very much involved in the conversion from the short term to the long term memory. So what we see is that all these areas, whenever the stress occurs, the executive homeostatic network, it causes the, if at all the, the mind is not capable of giving the outflow signals, from there, via the vagus, it goes to the whole of the body. There is stimulation of these autonomic areas. It will lead to an increase in this sympathetic activity. Person goes into a state of rage, in uh, indecision, a lot of stress. It, it stimulates our all other limbic areas where the anxiety and all those things come up. And at the same time, the adrenal is also very high and the cortisol level is high. They, and, these, and that leads to a decrease in the immune activity ultimately leading to decrease in the heart rate variability. Now, how we can find out this vagus activity? By simply, by taking the heart rate variability of the person. If the heart rate variability of the person is high, it automatically means that the parasympathetic tone is high and the sympathetic tone is low. If the heart rate variability is low, that means a person is having higher sympathetic activity, which is not good. And that is what we are doing in our hospitals on daily basis also for the patients, for many various disorders. So this stress, what that occurs in a person can be neutralized if we take any form of the treatment where this default mode network activity can be decreased and simultaneously we can increase the neural signals all over the brain. That is the stimulation of this executive homeostatic network so that there is synchronized increased flow of the signals from the brain and these uh, signals when they come up they ultimately what they will do they will cause a trophic action on the body and there will be an increased flow from the executive homeostatic network the default mode network stops working much higher and that leads to uh, that leads to this regulation of affective autonomic endocrine and immune function and that is what we actually are talking whether it is in a spiritual context or in any of these contexts we are talking about that is what we are talking the control or the connection of the heart and body, mind or the body, the, the intellect and as our emotional component, right? So we usually talk about any form of biofeedback, meditation, mental imagery. We usually talk about stress high and stress low. But you know, this is not what our body is doing. When we go into a state of relaxation, there is a completely different thing that starts happening in the body. That is called as the relaxation response. So that is totally anti of our stress. We want to initiate this relaxation response in our body and what happens when the relaxation response increases, our mitochondria that is the ultimately the, the, the battery that we are having in every cell that starts functioning in a pro proper way. And that is how we are capable of having the signals, the, whether it is brain, whether it is mind, whether it is heart, after any sort of the physical stimulus, it goes from all our five senses. It is all electrical signal. And for this electrical signal to understand, to interpret, to react, to respond, we need energy. And that the currency is only mitochondrial ATP. So when this relaxation response is initiated by any of these things, that leads to the improved mitochondrial resilience and better health. And ultimately what it does is, uh, again, I think uh, I need to be very precise about it. This is what happens when they, in a normal person, when these, all these things, central autonomic terms, when the parasympathetic activity goes high, we know that we have spleen. The spleen has macrophages, the immune response starts occurring from there. So the studies tell that the, when the person is having parasympathetic activity, the macrophages, we start having only it stimulates the beta receptors on the macrophages that decreases inflammation. 
Due to the decrease in the inflammation, we have a stable telomere that leads to the neuroprotection, calmer mind, healthier aging, higher cognition, and in nutshell, a better health of the person. The positive health, or what we talk esoterically as the yin and the yang, that means the sympathetic and parasympathetic balance. All these things start happening and we start enjoying our positive health, the creative ideas. Coming to the research that we have done, we are involved in is that uh, uh, in past two years, maybe after June, July or so, I'll be in a position to share the results in complete spectrum. We wanted to study what happens when the heartfulness meditation practitioners who have been practicing for nearly five years or so, what happens to this psycho-neuroimmuno. So we try to assess their EEG spectrum in, and what happens to their, along with EEG spectrum, to their autonomic functions, that means sympathetic, parasympathetic balance, and markers of subclinical inflammation, all the blah, 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 that is cortisol, and you know, in uh, all these interleukins, interleukin 1, 6, TNF, alpha, etc. What is actually happening that only by a single thought you can change your complete structure. And that goes much beyond our soma and our psycho. That means into the inner layers of it. So this is the study where we have found some, uh, these are the various studies we are doing it. And uh, we have tried to assess it and uh, we are getting very positive results out of it that a person can do it. Now this is another study which we have done which is about to be completed where we just want to study what is the immediate effect of the auditory brainwave entrainment on the EEG spectrum, heart rate variability and cognitive functions in the healthy adult volunteers. So we wanted to study that if we at all, if we give any brainwave entrainment session and our hypothesis was that it is going to whatever I have studied, that it was our hypothesis that it will synchronize over all the brain signals. We will find more of this putative these brain, brain waves coming into, into the, our EEGs that will also cause, we are also using all the advanced equipment that means beat to beat pressure, how uh, not only to the heart rate variability, much much higher to that, that how our heart rate, our blood pressure, how they are functioning, how they are related to the mind and what happens during across different sessions. That means when we give alpha or when we give theta or when we give delta, what we have done is we have chosen the same subjects, we gave them delta, then two weeks of washout period, then we give them theta and then alpha and then we try to observe all these changes. So this is how our methodology is, rest, we will take EEG baseline, then cognitive tasks, we will give some sort of cognitive tasks to them which will be computerized to look at their executive functioning, how the brain is functioning. Then we will give them a brain tap session of 20 minutes. And from then, thereafter, immediately after that, we will give the same cognitive task and then we will do the EEG of the person. So we want to study what happens when the person is going for it. And uh, auditory brainwave sessions are 20 minutes of intervention is there. And uh, we look at the heart rate variability and uh, all these changes. Then we also, we are doing this quantitative EEG analysis. We are looking at the cross-mutual information, which will tell how do both the areas are working. Because lots of studies are there that if does not matter if one is having alpha and this also is alpha but one is higher and the other is lower that also brings a lot of uh, lot of prob problem and lots of mental disorders to the patients so we want to study that what what happens when these things are given to the patients and this is what uh, the cognitive task is going on the hrv analysis what it clearly shows over here is that whether we are giving the alpha or whether we are giving the delta we are finding that the parasympathetic activity is increased in both of them. We have now put it up across frequency domain and the other domain analysis we have done. And it shows that the parasympathetic activity parameters are going up. Like for example, SDNN is there or we are having other parameters. LFHF ratio is there. We find that it decreases when a person is going for any sort of entrainment and increased heart weight variability marked by better sympathovagal balance and higher parasympathetic activity in comparison to the reduced sympathetic activity. And this is what is interesting. This is cross-mutual information. What we have done is the scene, the person when as he comes and during the session and afterwards. So I, I have not put the data, how many patients and all that because that is still being organized. That is that I'll be over only after June or July or so. But it is there is, if we take as a representative sample of 10 people over here, that if this is the coherence of various, that means all these neural networks are working at the baseline, 
what we see during the brainwave entrainment that there is crosstalk that increases. The neural signals, they start increasing, they start connecting to each other in a better way and that stays even after the brainwave entrainment has occurred. So the effect lasts. It is not something that is over immediately. And they, so we are getting various things like suppose if we give theta, we are trying to analyze what happens to our theta power. It does not mean we are talking about alpha is increased, that means whole of the brain is having alpha. Some areas will have more alpha, others will have lesser alpha. So what we are trying to do is, we are trying to observe what are the changes as it starts occurring when various entrainment happens. And what we find very clearly is that there is, even if when we are giving theta entrainment, the person's alpha also increases. And all of these are always going to help the person, right? So same way alpha entrainment, we find that when the alpha entrainment was given, there is an increase in the alpha power where we want it. That means in this, the prefrontal areas and over here, which we utilize when we are focusing on anything. Now this is another study, interesting study, which we have started just last week only, where we did not only want to see what happens during the immediate impact, we wanted to study what happens, what is the state and the trait change. Suppose if a person goes for 12 sessions or goes for 16 sessions, is it possible that the person's thinking pattern uh, the neuro due to neuroplasticity has long-term change, person starts, goes for the behavioral changes? This is where we are trying to address now. So effect of alpha and theta audiovisual brainwave entrainment on EEG, mood, cognition, heart rate variability, and psychological profile. And in psychological, we have taken nearly all the possible domains that we can think of from the executive function to how the person thinks about like uh, in executive function there are various things how a person reacts how the person can discriminate between two things how the person is capable of taking a decision that is the double decision or a single decision so we have tried to have a healthy cognitive test battery and uh, our methodology is simple that we will be taking the person and we will take him through eight weeks of alternate day entrainment, one group will give alpha, the other will get theta and then we will look at their baseline and also we will see what happens across one thing at zero, that means in the middle that is at four weeks and at eight weeks. So what are the changes that occur when a person goes through single session, those also we are trying to note down. So this is my research group which is working very nicely and Gautam Buddha University, this is where um, our medical college is located. This uh, Dr. Sondar Rajan is doing the study which I told you initially. He is the PG student over there who is working with us. And these are the rest of the people who are working with me right now. And this is the CME where Dr. Patrick was talking about. He came over here a few months back and we had a very nice gathering and where even the Vice Chancellor gave a very interesting talk. And he talked a lot about the mind-body medicine. So in summary, what I'm talking about is that the mind-body therapies, they work by the top-down and the bottom-up approaches. They both interact. We can't say that mind is separate and the body is separate. The mind-body therapy induces the neuroplastic changes. The, it quietens the DMN activity and the executive homeostatic network is more synchronized flow and telomere, telomerase system optimization occurs that brings the homeostasis in the body and as well as in the mind. It, really, it, uh, it induces the relaxation response that upgrades our mitochondrial resilience and downgrades all the inflammation by the epigenetic mechanism. Then brainwave entrainment through brain tap technology can also be utilized to optimize the physical, mental and spiritual health in all and as an adjunct in the patient population. So both nature and nurturing are important for realizing our self-potential. Thank you very much for uh, being with me during this session. Thank you.